on today's episode. Ultimately, the battle is still for the heart. And the way you convict the heart is the administration of God's Word. It's not going to have all of the flamboyancy of, 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 of a Supreme Court ruling or a political victory, uh, legislative triumph. But in the end, it's what works. Welcome to the Life Challenges podcast from Christian Life Resources. People today face many opportunities and struggles when it comes to issues of life and death, marriage and family, health and science. We're here to bring a fresh biblical perspective to these issues and more. Join us now for Life Challenges. Welcome back. I'm Krista Potratz, and I'm here today with pastors Bob Fleischman and Jeff Samuelson. And today we are going to talk about when did it become okay to kill children? We're going to use this topic to look back into history, the history of abortion. And we're going to see how we got to where we are today. Because where we are today does seem pretty shocking, but how we got here is is important too. And so, Jeff, if you can just kind of tell us a little bit about why looking at the history of abortion is important for us as Christians and also as as pro-life activists too? Well, it's always been something that Christians, our, our believers going back into the Old Testament, have, have been concerned about. God gives a, a duty, a vocation to parents, and that includes loving and taking care of their children, not hurting them, not certainly not killing them. And yet throughout history, there have been many times, many cultures, uh, many instances where people were just kind of like, maybe they weren't saying, oh, yay, let's go out and kill children, but they were basically okay with it in certain circumstances. It's something we still deal with a lot today as as Christians. I think there was a, a golden age, we might say, in Western Christianity where we could say just about everybody was agreed that, no, no, you, you treat children as treasures. You, you do, do everything you can to keep them alive instead of the opposite. And with the uh, nationwide legalization of uh, abortion in, in Roe v. Wade back in 1973, that whole kind of idea of the golden age was completely exploded when Christians began to realize or should have begun to realize that suddenly we were saying that children in the womb were worth – you could just throw them away if, uh, if, if you thought you had a good enough reason for it. And so as pro-life Christians in particular, this is a general topic that we, we need to be informed on, we need to care about, uh, but particularly right now here in the United States, we're, we're – watching with anticipation, perhaps cautious optimism, what's happening with the Supreme Court. Because back in the uh, beginning of December, the Supreme Court heard the arguments in the case Dobbs versus Mississippi, which involves a uh, 15-week abortion ban. And there are a lot of people in the pro-life movement who are very optimistic that this particular Supreme Court will use the opportunity of that decision to um, overturn Roe v. Wade, or at the very least to um, modify its controlling precedent in such a way that, uh, well, that it will be a real victory for life and against uh, against the practice of abortion. It remains to be seen what's really going to happen with that, but um, I think that there are a lot of even pro-life Americans who are going to be somewhat taken by surprise by whatever is decided in, we assume it's going to be in June, uh, simply because they don't really know the whole picture. 
And so I think it's good for us now to, to get more of the whole picture by just talking about the history of it. So, Bob, where do we start? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> when we when we think about the history of abortion, I mean, how far back really is is a good is a good starting point for us? Well, as Christians, I mean, you, you look at Cain killing Abel. There just got to be a certain point where Abel became a, a problem, a bother, and so he needed to be dispensed with. And you see that as an as an undercurrent theme in almost well in all cultures. I uh, I always like to look at. When God brought the the flood and said, "Because of uh, we're going to do this because every inclination of man's heart is evil," okay. So we have the flood wipes out everybody except Noah and the family. They get off the ark. They offer sacrifice. God throws a rainbow in the sky and says, "I'm not going to do that again, even though every inclination of man's heart is evil." And I think that we horribly, horribly, horribly underestimate the inclination of every man's heart. Towards evil, and I think when think of we we learn about in Roman time and Greek times when the uh, the men were away at, at in war or battle, and their wives would have relations with the servants, uh, unexpectedly became pregnant, so um, they would d- deliver a child and then uh, let the child die by exposure, put out in the woods, let the animals uh, have at it, and this is where infanticide. Whenever you study the history of infanticide. You get that. And and if it was not necessarily legal, it was acceptable. It was acceptable in certain cultures. So then you start getting into, you become more scientifically knowledgeable and able, and you begin to start looking at, how about we stop this during the pregnancy? Why go through the drama of having to take a, a born child? It, it reminded me of a, a paper that I found. I was doing some research up at the University of Ottawa in their library back in like the late 1980s. And I ran across a paper in which they were talking about legalizing infanticide. The argument of the paper was, should it be legal for a family up to three days after a child is born for the family to decide they don't want this child and have the child uh, die? And the thing the thing about the paper that was kind of crazy was it accepted that as a as – Certainly, that should be legal, but the whole debate really was who did it, who does it. You know, what do you have somebody a, a, a hired terminator who does this? Do you, does the doctor do it? Well, he's supposed to be the caregiver. Does the nurse do it? The nurse is already traumatized by getting all the dirt work from the doctor. Do the parents do it? Oh, the parents are traumatized because they had a and they use the term radically defective neonate. You know, so they didn't want to. They were already traumatized why I had it to them. So they went back to saying the doctor really should do it because it's his job to carry out the the will of the parents. But when I remember reading that article, like I said, in about 1989, I think it was, and reading that article and thinking to myself, how do you get to your, yourself to a point where you say this is acceptable? And the way you get yourself to that point is, I believe, you gather around people who think just like you, and you try not to expose yourself to people who think in contrary ways. When abortion became legalized in 1972, it had already been floating around the United States in a legal fashion since 1967 when Colorado had passed a a pro-abortion piece of legislation. Then New York started, and then California, and I think North Dakota. um, There may have been one other state. And all of that was happening before 1973. So when Roe v. Wade was decided, 
the palate was already wetted for being able to do this. And at this point in the 60s, was it was it already determined that life began at conception or was there still a question mark as to when it began? Well, the, the crazy thing is, is that there kind of went a definition change. There, there used to be talk all the time of life beginning at conception. And for Christians, you know, we talk a lot about Psalm 51.5. I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And I think we talked about that in another episode. We, we talked about that way. But then as we began to develop, actually, when we began to develop uh, in vitro fertilization or assisted reproductive technology, uh, then there was kind of a radical change in the way that we evaluated. And was that in the seventies? Yeah, that, that was happened? getting into the seventies now, and okay. and the idea they were talking about there was that we'll we'll just kind of worry about when a pregnancy starts. So we'll say you're not pregnant until uh, the developing embryo embeds in the uterine lining of the womb, and that by by selling that to the public, it opened up. Uh, the opportunity for in vitro fertilization, you know, test two, well, they called it test two babies, which was a misnomer. It was a Petri dish babies. And they would start them in a Petri dish. And then if not, they didn't feel some were going to be good, they'd get rid of them. And, and if some didn't take, well, don't worry because you weren't pregnant. It would be easier for the mother to accept it and so forth. And so we, we become accepting of it. And then, of course, we get into the practical issue of where do you start drawing the line? Clearly, the medical profession had drawn the line at pregnancy. And then, of course, you have to have another line drawn, and that would be at birth. You get to the point where society begins to accept the fact that we now have the technology. We now know what to do to end life in the womb. Now, it isn't like we didn't know how to do that before 1973. The, the ancient practices for abortion a lot of times involved seaweed and things like that. They, they realized that different substances placed in the vaginal cavity would get up and create an unfriendly environment and would prevent a pregnancy from continuing. So they would try these kinds of things in the old days. But when it became socially acceptable was kind of on the heels of the 60s and this idea of, of rights. And, and I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times, all of history is a pendulum swing. Women should have been, in, in my view, women should have been voting long before they got the right to vote. But the problem was is that, like most things, it pendulum swung. Then it went way too far. You know, now all of a sudden, women must be equal to men in every in every way. And if men don't have to carry a baby, then women don't have to carry a baby. And now you've seen it expanded into gender, gender selection, all that kind of stuff. So in in the in the fight to equality. It, it required ignoring biological differences. And once you ignore biological differences, you face this real problem, and that is you can ignore it all you want, but it's still there. Men don't get pregnant. Women get pregnant. And so so there needed to be an undercurrent. And this is where when you study feminism, even feminism reached a crossroads where the feminists who, um, including the original feminists, were very pro-life, very pro-motherhood, but they just wanted the right to vote. They wanted to have a say. And then the radical feminists said, no, it still is the uh, the Darwinian notion of the strong over the weak. And that that still permeates um, permeates the industry. It permeates the, no, the culture of American uh, attitudes on abortion. 
So after Roe v. Wade then was was passed, because I know we've talked a little bit about like the the climate um, at the at that point too. Kind of then then what? Like what was really happening then, especially the later seventies and the eighties? In um, right in in nineteen seventy four, there was a series of congressional hearings advocating for the adoption of what was called a human life amendment, just recognizing life begins at conception and it deserves to be protected. And there was all sorts, I mean, it's volumes. Uh, I have them in my library, but there are volumes on this whole topic. And people will get into discussions on, uh, well, what what if you're pregnant and you you fell off of a, a ladder? Do we prosecute you for manslaughter because you weren't being careful? And and, what, and so, so there were all sorts of arguments that were raised. And if you remember, one of the foundational arguments that Blackman put into the Supreme Court ruling was religion and science can't agree on when life begins, so we shouldn't try to adjudicate that. The, the, the crazy thing is, is that at these 1974 hearings, even abortion rights advocates would say, well, you know, of course, if we knew that life began conception, it would be wrong to take it because they would be in the questioning as witnesses. They would be questioned on it. Well, what if we decided, you know, like, and that was a bold-faced lie. No, nobody in advocating abortion rights, you know, they they knew what they were doing. There, there's no no child that went up to his, uh, you know, mother's belly and said, "Oh, mom, I see you have fetal tissue growing there." You know, I mean, it just, you know, they they always talked about it being a baby. And things, things of that sort. And that was basically, I think, in my view of studying abortion history, was the big secret of the pro-abortion movement. Is they knew they were advocating for killing, just nobody, you would never say it. And so it would annoy the daylights out of them when pro-life people would have the sign that would say, abortion stops a beating heart. And Well, of course it does. Well, what, what do you think is being stopped? But they didn't like it because it was hard, and they didn't like showing the pictures of life development because it would be too traumatic. And well, nobody ever wanted to ask the question: Why would that be traumatic? Because you would actually visualize what's going on, just because you can't see it. Well, then I I've always felt that in 1995 was kind of a watershed moment when Naomi Wolf, uh, a columnist, an abortion rights advocate, came out with a an article called "Our Bodies, Our Souls." And uh, she wanted to evaluate pro-choice strategy. And in it, she acknowledges that in abortion, a life is being taken. And I I remember the aftermath of the article because abortion rights advocates tried to distance themselves from the article and from the argument. But what she said was pretty telling. I got it right here. She said, clinging to a rhetoric about abortion in which there is no life and no death, we entangle our beliefs in a series of self-delusions fibs, and evasions. And we risk becoming precisely what our critics charge us with being, callous, selfish, and casually destructive men and women who share a cheapened view of human life. And then she goes down later in the article, she was talking about Norma McCorvey, who was the original Roe in the Roe versus Wade case. Norma McCorvey uh, later came out pro-life and became critical of the abortion rights movement. But she writes, what McCorvey and other Americans want and deserve is an abortion rights movement willing willing publicly to mourn the evil, necessary evil though it may be, that is abortion. 
So basically, and this was on October 16th, 1995, uh, when that article came out, it was kind of like somebody looked behind the curtain. You know, all of a sudden we now knew what was going on. You know, it was, they were calling it. And the, and the fact of the matter is they got away with it. And that's when you realize that the culture was accepting that there's just some life that's expendable. And then uh, later on in 2008, Camille Paglia wrote, wrote an article on, on the abortion issue. And, she, um, and in it, she basically argued that sometimes it, she called it f- fresh blood for the vampire. She was talking about the presidential debates, but she, was, but she writes this. She says, this is 2008. She says, hence, I've always frankly admitted that abortion is murder, the extermination of the powerless by the powerful. Liberals, for the most part, have shrunk from facing the ethical consequences of their embrace of abortion, which results in the annihilation of concrete individuals and not just clumps of tissue. The state, in my view, has no authority whatever to intervene in the biological processes of any woman's body, which nature has implanted there before birth and hence before the woman's entrance into society and citizenship. On the other hand, I support the death penalty for atrocious crimes like rape, murder, or murder of children. And I've never understood the standard democratic combo of support for abortion and yet opposition for the death penalty. Surely it is the guilty rather than the innocent who deserve execution. And she just goes on to say abortion still should be okay. One of the questions that I have, too, and maybe both of you can can chime in to this, was just when did abortion kind of switch to be such a part of the democratic platform? Because it wasn't always like that. I mean, I know in history too, right? I mean, I, a lot of people that I listen to, like they like to like, oh, remember, you know, when when Bill Clinton or Hillary were pro-life. Was that all happening around the time of the 95 it was uh, a tendency or a, a direction going back to to the 60s, the 70s. It was – okay, if you were to just generally survey Democratic politicians and policies versus Republican uh, politicians and policies, generally speaking, the people on the pro-abortion side would be in the Democratic Party and generally speaking, the pro-life people would be in the Republican side. But it wasn't absolute – the Republican Party started becoming much more thoroughly pro-life, I'd say around the time Reagan uh, came along, so you know, in the, the 80s. It's clear looking back now with some things we know that there were um, prominent Republican candidates and politicians who took pro-life positions who weren't particularly pro-life in reality, but they were doing so for political reasons. And I'm sure many of those are still around, but it, it's hard to be a Republican today and take anything but a pro-life position in, in a public sense. But the Pushing out of the, uh, the 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 non-orthodox, so to speak, happened much more um, extremely. I think in the Democratic Party because there used to be a lot, you know, because it used to be, for instance, that most Roman Catholics in America voted Democratic, and Roman Catholics tend to be pro-life, and so there were still a lot of pro-life Democrats out there, both as voters and within positions of uh, in, the, in the government or whatever. But I, I can't remember the exact year. I think it was in the 90s. 
The governor of Pennsylvania, who was a prominent Democrat, either he had been asked to or he asked himself to address the the Democratic convention, and they refused to allow him to do so because he was pro-life. They had decided that the Democratic platform from then on was going to be only and that was in the 70s? 90s. Oh, oh the 90s. So it's okay. fairly okay. recent, yeah. you know, yeah. politically speaking. No, I mean, I just bring that up, like, with the history, too, because I think that it is just interesting to me when we go from the 70s to where we are today. I mean, today it just seems to be such a divided party issue. I see people on either side that kind of appear to maybe be the outliers in different parties, but just really seems to have really divided people. Well, sometimes in politics, it it always reminds me of growing up, there were Ford people, and then there were Chevy people, and then there were the two AMC people. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, the, I'm sorry, I'm all you AMC people and ramblers, but the uh, but I mean, you had the Ford people and you had the Chevy people, and then they had offspring that were, Ford people or Chevy, you know, they, they tend to follow it. And political parties oftentimes went that way. A lot of times, I think issues today with politics, issues today are, are a lot more disqualifying. Like, for example, it's very difficult for me to vote for any candidate that says it's okay to take the life of an unborn child. It just is. It's a disqualifying issue for me. But, you know, when I look at the history of Democratic and Republican Party, I think where the Democratic Party really, in in my view, uh, caught some traction was during the civil rights movement. Uh, there's writings that I've I've read about things Republicans said and so forth in the civil rights movement that just has me scratching my head. It's like it's horrible, you know. Some of it's just prejudicial. It's uh, and things I experienced in my own hometown that I was shocked at some of the stuff that I would read in the paper. And the and the Democrats, I think, rightly had seen that there needs to be some sort of equality thing and. And so as a result, I think they, they gained a following. They, they took up the cause of, the, of labor and, and the fact that labor was not being always treated fairly, childhood labor laws, all that kind of stuff. And so they took up those causes, which became immensely uh, popular with the blue-collar community. And, and, then, and now today, it's really mo- mostly marketing. You know, it's, can we, can we uh, paint Republicans as being the rich man's party? And can we, can we paint the, the Democrats as being the, the working man's party? And they, they still try to do that. But the way this affected the abortion decision is still uh, befuddling for me because, you know, I remember I, I did volunteer work for Wisconsin Citizens Concerned for Life, which was the precursor to Wisconsin Right to Life. And I did editing work. And one of the earliest articles that I remember publishing was it had a picture of Jesse Jackson and and uh, a thing he had said, an article he'd written, where he called abortion black genocide because he recognized the abortion clinics were up in the communities where the African-American community was, and they were the ones that were proportionately having the greater number of abortions. And he saw it as a, a white man's way of trying to dwindle the, the black population. And then, and then he ran for president, and became pro-abortion. It isn't like it, it stopped being black genocide. I forbid the thought that a politician would say he made a mistake, but but that's kind of a mentality. And the problem is, for those of us who do this kind of work, this is a near and dear issue for us. So it becomes a high prominent issue. the po- The point is, is that you still get down to the base issue, and that is, 
why are we willing to take life? And I, th- I still think the fundamental issue has to do with the inclination of all hearts, including practicing Christians, we have the inclination, and our unwillingness to embrace something like Philippians 2, you know, where you think more of others than yourself. It, it's hard to do that. It's easy to do that when life is going well, when I have a great roof over my head, my family's happy, everyone's doing well, and then all of a sudden, you know, you wander a little bit, somebody gets pregnant when they weren't expecting to get pregnant, and all of a sudden, all that pro-life, we had a, we had a, uh, a Wells mother, a mother of our church body, bring in her daughter into one of our pregnancy uh, care centers and looking for an abortion, and she thought that we would do a referral for an abortion. And the counselor was was talking with them. And and the, the girl, the pregnant girl said, um, you know, because she, she was saying, well, you know, God has given us life and all this kind of stuff. And Jesus died for us and everything. And she said, well, I know God would not want me to be unhappy. You know, and so we, you know, part of it is we begin to form a theology that's much more reflective of the world than it is of scripture. And so even our own people begin to drift away. So you know, and that's how people become accepting of it. Yeah, you know, when you hear when you say that story too, I think of just I think where we are in society is just that the voice of the mother becomes the louder voice, and just that this idea that I, you know, just thinking back like to our original question, like when did it become okay to kill children? Just that, well, okay, the the mother's got to succeed. She's got to go to college. She has to fulfill her dreams. She has to be able to do all these things. And so then it's okay if we just remove something that nobody has ever seen before. And I think that's where we are. I think that's maybe where we've been for a while. And I don't know really where it goes from here, but that's just my general observation is that we're going to we're gonna be all for the thing we can see and for the thing we don't see, we're just going to kind of pretend that it's, it's not there. You, you asked a question earlier, of, uh, Bob, about um, what was it that, that makes it okay? Or, or, and Bob said something about being around people with the like idea and, and oh, yeah. such. But mm-hmm. I think part of what it starts with is somebody in authority saying it's okay. You, you think about it, the, um, when, when uh, the Moabites were sacrificing their children to Moloch, I, you, it's highly unlikely that there were parents sitting around saying, oh, we just had this baby. Can we go sacrifice him to this awful God? No. The only reason that was okayed is because the person in charge, whether it was king or a you know, high priest or whatever, said, this is what must be done. And he had sufficient authority that he got people to go along. But after the first time, after the next 20 times or whatever, then it became, oh, this is just what we do in our society. And that's pretty much what we saw happen here in the United States with, with abortion and the attitude toward it. The people with the authority, the Supreme Court, a bunch of old white men, which is I always find kind of uh, uh, interesting irony, said, oh, no, this is okay. This is what should be allowed. And so a lot of people said, okay, well, if that's what those guys said. You know, then I guess it must be right. It must be Okay. And again, the more people said that, then the more people said, oh, well, then I guess it's okay because everybody's doing it. 
you know, really like the internet today too, just and social media, we can connect with all of these like-minded people too. And so I think in some ways, I it has maybe just gotten almost like more polarized with just the different sides, because it's so much easier to connect with all these people that think just like us. Well, and a lot of it is a lack of an anchor. Would I be pro-life if I weren't a Christian? I don't know. I, you know, I was raised in a household where my parents very much venerated children and and loved them dearly, and it was it was a big deal. My mother's from the Netherlands, so you get the Dutch grandmother, and she's hugging all the kids and making a big deal and all that kind of stuff. It just is a it was an environment I was brought in, but you know, ultimately you're tethered by what pleases God, and that's what tethers us. So I, I've often asked myself, what would I be like if I weren't tethered? I remember when I was a kid and I would listen to Walter Cronkite talk about a battle in Vietnam. And every once in a while, you'd get a story out there of children put in the front line because they knew the other side would not want to shoot the children in order to get through. And and I remember even as a kid, which shows you how bizarre thinking I was as a kid, uh, but even as a kid, I would think to myself, but their culture says that we could do that, and I, and I never could understand how do you, how do you get to the point? You know, how, you know, it's, it's one thing to to read about throwing your child to a god, a god, but how do you actually be that one to do that? You know, it, and it has to do with kind of being convinced by your environment. That's why we often talk about the university you go to. Life is a lot different if you don't have to deal with some sort of standard of rightness and wrongness and propriety, and what you have is you have a melting pot of society that says, uh, you should not interfere with my right to control my body, even if it means that child must go. And how far does that right go? Does it does it extend to uh, just in the womb? Does it go to the outside of the womb? And, you know, I can't, I can't abuse a child, but I can decide not to treat a child. That's what happened in Bloomington, Indiana in 1982. You know, baby Doe was born, and they decided that they weren't going to treat the child because the child was born with Down syndrome. And so the child was left to die of neglect. And there were no charges, you know. And and the thing that was even more shocking was when um, medical journals were coming out and doctors were saying, yeah, they do it all the time. I got a friend of mine who was a retired nurse in Milwaukee, a county hospital in Milwaukee. She said, yeah, that happened there too. I think an important point to add is that certainly the fact that we are Christian informs our pro-life attitude, but you don't have to be Christian to be pro-life. Um, right. And since we care not just about our own children, but about the children of everyone, that means that we as pro-life Christians have a uh, duty to persuade that we want to to be out in our society, you know, talking to our friends and you know people and such in such a way that we attempt to persuade them uh, to, to value life, and uh, that means there's work to do. Well, and persuasions change too. You know, we mm-hmm. used to if we just show them the pictures of unborn life developing the womb. That because he had these in womb pictures, color pictures. They were published. They were in um, Life magazine. Uh, they were incredible. And the reality was. It didn't do the trick. And and that's why I've said normally you kind of rely on either faith or logic, faith or reason. 
but sometimes people defy logic uh, because if you follow the logical steps of the abortion rights movement, it leads to infanticide and it leads to assisted suicide and it puts all of your life at ri- all of your lives at risk. Once someone in authority uh, has determined that you are of subordinate value to them, because that's exactly what abortion is. Once they said it's a life in the womb, then it's really an argument of a, a higher form of life over a supposedly lower form of life. So as we kind of wrap up here, is there just something important to kind of close with for our, our listeners as we go into the possible or Supreme Court reversal ruling or whatever June brings? I guess I'll just say that even if the prayers of pro-lifers in America are answered to the fullest and the Supreme Court completely overturns Roe v. Wade in June, our work is not done by any stretch. That just means that the decision goes back to the individual states, and there are some states that have very pro-life laws on the books right now, and there are some that have very abortion-permissive laws uh, on the books, and there'll still be work there. And of course, it's not just abortion. The issues of life are so many more than just that these days, euthanasia and assisted suicide and so much, so much more. Um, so the work is, the end of abortion in America is is the, the holy grail, so to speak. But we want fewer abortions because that means fewer children dying. Um, that's not all going to happen in an instant, even if the Supreme Court decides the, the way we want them to. Never underestimate the determination of the abortion rights movement. You know, I think of it this way, you know, when, when all of a sudden alcohol was deemed to be the evil of society, prohibition came in. And then a whole underground network of uh, illegal alcohol came out of it. People become determined. That's why ultimately the battle is still for the heart. And the way you you, um, convict the heart is the administration of God's word. It's not going to have all of the flamboyancy of of a Supreme Court ruling or a political victory, uh, legislative triumph. But in the end, it's what works. Well, thank you both for everything, and I think you have given myself and our listeners a lot to think about as we prepare for for June. And so I want to thank everybody for, for listening, and if you like this episode, please subscribe to our podcast, and we'll see you back next time. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Life Challenges podcast from Christian Life Resources. Please consider subscribing to this podcast, giving us a review wherever you access it, and sharing it with friends. We're sure you have questions on today's topic or other life issues. Our goal is to help you through these tough topics, and we want you to know we're here to help. You can submit your questions as well as comments or suggestions for future episodes at lifechallenges.us or email us at podcast at christianliferesources.com. In addition to the podcasts, we include other valuable information at lifechallenges.us, so be sure to check it out. For more about our parent organization, please visit christianliferesources.com. May God give you wisdom, love, strength and peace in Christ for every life challenge.